From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence. Powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, the national conversation, it's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, October 18th, through Friday, October 22nd, 2021. It was a week of booster talk, supply chain walk, high price pork, and rape train gawk. We're embarking upon a bold hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different points of view will be tested. We've got righties, lefties, and introspective fence-sitters waiting in the wings to tickle your brain with notions, potions, and emotions. Don't get angry. Just listen with an appropriate amount of educated skepticism. We'll hear from opinionated yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do their daily dance of affirmation. In a fragmented, noisy world, we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Rap, heard coast-to-coast and around the world on great radio stations in the U.S. and the U.K. This past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media and played out in the theater of your mind. Information's gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Fasten your C-Crane earbuds. Speaking of which, this installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap is sponsored in part by C-Crane, makers and distributors of great radios. Visit their website at ccrane.com or give them a call at 800-522-8863. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10 this week, political correctness with a focus this week on the Dave Chappelle controversy. Seems there is always a controversy in the news that illustrates the current influence of political correctness, righteous indignation, and the cancel culture in our society. The current hot issue revolves around comedian Dave Chappelle's controversial Netflix special, in which he made remarks allegedly hurtful to the transgender community that sparked an employee walkout at the streaming network. At number 9, U.S.-China Relations. Tensions in Taiwan seem to be cooling down this week. However, the democratic island nation, an American ally, remains on alert in the face of Chinese military maneuvers in the region that are too close for comfort. In other news, there's more of the same. Unfair Chinese trade practices, surveillance, internet tampering, human rights abuses, and ongoing concern over the communist giant's role in the origins and spread of COVID-19. At number eight, a tie between voter legislation and race relations. The GOP juggernaut in red states to enact more stringent voter laws in the name of election honesty and accuracy has grown into one of the core differences between the Republican and Democratic parties heading into the 2022 midterm election. And it is at the political heart of race relations in America here in 2021. At number seven, the death of Colin Powell. Americans mourn the death this week of the former Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a man whose popularity at one point was so high he was considered a major contender to be President of the United States. 
position he ultimately chose not to pursue. But with his death resurfaced controversy over his pivotal role in the buildup of the post-9-11 invasion of Iraq in pursuit of Saddam Hussein's so-called weapons of mass destruction. At number six, a three-way tie between immigration reform, climate change, and abortion. These are three perennials that show up week after week. Abortion came back into the spotlight this year with tensions mounting over the recently passed law in Texas, the most restrictive in the nation. And on the immigration front, the humanitarian crisis continues along the southern border, but the only major platform giving it attention these days is News Talk Radio. At number five, a three-way tie between crime and violence, the Philadelphia train rape, and Nicholas Cruz pleads guilty in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School mass murder case. A woman was assaulted and raped on a Philadelphia commuter train in full view of passengers, none of whom intervened, but many of whom captured video of it on their smartphones. Fortunately, one person used her phone to call the police who apprehended the assailant at the next station. It's been three and a half years since the horrific shooting and murder of 17 people, 14 students, three faculty, and 17 more injured at a high school in Parkland, Florida. The seemingly remorseful shooter pleaded guilty this week at a trial in which there can only be one of two outcomes, execution or life in prison without any chance of parole. At number four, Facebook issues, social media regulation, and cybersecurity. Security. Facebook is facing so many public relations problems that there are reports indicating the giant social media platform might be changing its corporate name. Of course, as the saying goes, a rose by any name would smell as sweet. Or this case would still stink to high heaven and be just as thorny. At number three, COVID-19 boosters, mandates, and talk show host Dennis Prager's statement about immunity. Most of the pandemic talk this week focused on the question of whether vaccines and boosters from the various big pharmaceutical manufacturers can be mixed and matched, with the FDA saying it is basically okay. There was a big buzz on radio and beyond as talk show host Dennis Prager revealed that he is unvaccinated and went out of his way to contract the disease in order to achieve natural immunity. At number two this week, the January 6th investigation with a focus on the Stephen K. Bannon subpoena tied with Trump's ongoing claims of 2020 election fraud. The House voted on Thursday to find Trump ally Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with a subpoena, ordering him to testify before the select committee. Although most GOP officials privately acknowledge that Donald Trump was not robbed of a second term in a fraudulent election, they publicly ignore his ongoing blatant claims that the 2020 election was rigged, opting to accept the premise that there were irregularities that warrant investigation and reform. At number one, the economy, with a focus on the budget debate, the infrastructure, inflation, supply chain delays, and the labor shortage. At a televised town meeting, the president says he still believes in bipartisanship and remains hopeful that he'll reach a compromise with Republicans in the House and Senate, as well as dissenters within his own party. Meantime, the U.S. economic recovery remains shaky and uncertain. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Joining us now from Las Vegas, Nevada, with the latest pandemic poop, 
is our medical correspondent, a popular talk show host heard daily on the Genesis Communications Network, Dr. Dahlia Wax. Let's begin talking about boosters, um, whether or not uh, one company's booster will uh, be effective with another company's main shots. Um, what are your thoughts about this subject? Even though the FDA has approved mixing and matching boosters, many people are asking, should we? Should we just stick with what we got? And I really think it's, um, you know, six and one half a dozen of another. I think overall there's the safety. And for those who got Johnson & Johnson or are con- and are concerned about long-term efficacy, they might do better with an mRNA vaccine. But what the FDA did is allow the M Moderna um recipients to now get boosters, the Johnson & Johnson recipients to get boosters, not only by if they want to get a Pfizer or not, but by also approving Moderna and Johnson boosters themselves. So what that's done is now increase accessibility. But in terms of which shot is better than another, we really can't say yet. And um, it's a good thing that they've approved the mixing and matching. There's a lot of politicizing about this, obviously, from the beginning, and it continues now. The death of Colin Powell uh, brings to uh, the fore another example of that. Some people um, claiming that, see, the vaccines don't work. He was vaccinated, and he got a breakthrough, and he died. And uh, that could happen to anyone, and that that it's a mark on the vaccines. Um, Others are saying, but he had uh, blood cancer, and his uh, immune system was suppressed. And that's why that happened, and it's also why people with uh, immune issues, immunization issues, and um, who are compromised, and of course are older, uh, have to be protected. Um, what's What's your say on this particular discussion? Yeah, exactly. And may Colin Powell rest in peace. He he was a fine servant and and, and veteran, and he served our country um, in multiple administrations. And so it was really sad to see him go. But but the kernel of the criticism um, is based on, for example, there's a hospital in Washington that won't let unvaccinated people see their family members in the hospital unless they get vaccinated or unless they prove they don't have COVID. And so Colin Powell's death is another piece of proof that vaccinated people are walking around with COVID. And so until they do something about the way they're approaching mandates and people being allowed to see their dying family members, being allowed to go to school, being allowed to eat, when we hear vaccinated people are sick, can carry the virus, can still die of the virus, it doesn't make a lot of sense to discriminate and restrict the unvaccinated to the degree that they're doing. What about the variant? Um, the, the Delta wave is still happening, but um, there's talk now about something on the heels of, of Delta. What should we know? Yes, absolutely. So the AY4.2 subvariant of the Delta wave has been identified now in multiple states. It has been um, a variant of concern in the UK. Moscow, I think, is about to go on lockdown, but we don't think it's because of this strain. And so it's still too early to tell if this is a strain that's been causing this new wave of cases in the UK. We follow the UK by about six to eight weeks. So if the UK is battling a new wave, then we may follow. And so this AY2, AY4.2 has some spike protein mutations that might make it more infectious, but it's still too early to say, so we're watching it very closely. Did you say this is a sub-variant of the Delta variant? This is a variant of the variant? Yes. Yep. So of the different lineages that are out there, it's a sub-variant of Delta. And as we know, Delta has been very prominent. And whenever you have a virus that's very prominent, it can mutate and then have 
progeny. So we think this is a baby Delta, or they call it a Delta Plus. I, I could just see talk show hosts and news commentators around the country writing down AY4.2 subvariant. I mean, it's a heck of a thing keeping up with all of these names and all of these drugs and everything. Uh, uh, that's normal for you as a doctor, but it, sh- it certainly has proven challenging to those who are reporting on all of this uh, who do it not is. have uh, mm-hmm. medical degrees or history of studying medicine. And um, I, the, the whole story with talk show host Dennis Prager made the talker survey as uh, one of the most talked about issues. And uh, certainly it's it's gone beyond talk radio. Uh, Dennis Prager, a conservative talk show host, he's in his 70s. He um, proudly announced that uh, not only is he unvaccinated, but he's in great health and he's actually gone out of his way to contract uh, the uh, coronavirus. And now uh, he's um, getting better quick and he'll, he'll, be, he'll have natural immunity, which is better than than um, vaccine immunity. What are your thoughts about this? It's gutsy to want to get COVID on purpose, which is what he had announced. But Dennis Prager is of that uh, baby boomer generation where you rub some dirt on it and you got back up and you played stickball. And natural immunity is huge for the baby boomers. And so the, he is one of the, you know, multiple people, uh, multiple millions of people out there going, look, we were trained that we need natural immunity. We were trained not to rely on something artificially made in a lab. Why can't I get the virus and get treated like Trump did? And so all eyes are on him because he's 73 years old. He, you know, is not in the most ideal health, but he got treated with a monoclonal antibody cocktail Regeneron like Trump did. He's been taking hydroxychloroquine. He's been taken ivermectin, azithromycin, and zinc. And he actually has been on hydroxychloroquine for a year and a half, which makes us wonder if that did protect him from getting COVID. But, you know, he might end up being the poster child for an unvaccinated who gets treated with therapeutics early on. And that could really shift a lot of conversation, depending on if the media covers it or not. So it is very interesting. I think if Trump survived, a lot of people could survive COVID, but we just aren't putting the same attention on monoclonal antibodies as we're doing um, vaccines. And vaccines are great, but if the vaccine immunity is waning, we're going to have to get more monoclonal antibodies. We're going to have to treat people with other medicines. You know, look at the clinical studies studies of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. So he's kind of bringing, bringing to the forefront, you know, the, the topic of, look, you know, the vaccine may not protect you. If it didn't protect Colin Powell, we need to have plan B. And I'm not saying this to defend him because what he did was, you know, still pretty dangerous, but it's going to be interesting to see how he fares being his age and having COVID. What about uh, the reverse angle on it that um, even if what you're saying is true and there's some positive uh, benefits to be gotten by his actions, that um, in order to try to get COVID, he went around hugging and appearing with and being as close to as many strangers as possible. Um, uh, critics say that that's irresponsible and that he could be spreading COVID to people. Um, uh, which is the downside to that. What are your thoughts? I was on campus trying to help um, answer questions and get college students vaccinated, and they almost sounded exactly like Dennis Prager. They're like, I want it. I want to go to the football game. I want to get natural immunity. I don't want the vaccine to prevent me from getting natural immunity. And I think we have for years been been preached about how natural immunity and a good immune system and, it, and, and not being bubbled up and playing video games or stuck in our 
basement watching porn is bad because you need to be out there around bugs and gain an immunity, that it's really tough for these generations and these populations to flip it like a switch to go, no, 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 natural immunity is not going to be good in this one case. That's our medical correspondent, Genesis Communications Network radio talk show host and nationally respected physician, Dr. Dahlia Wax. Coming up next, a trip to South Florida and a close look at a mass murderer. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Hey, fellow radio lover, have you noticed how hard it is to buy a radio these days? The stores hardly have any, let alone a selection. I may not be the smartest guy in the world, but there's one subject I do know a lot about, and that's radio. So let me share with you a secret that many, many radio industry professionals have known for years. The place to get a radio, just about any kind of high-quality radio or radio-oriented device, is C-Crane. C-Crane is the company that specializes in radios of all sorts, large and small, radios that sound good and operate under all kinds of conditions. Radios that pluck AM, FM, and shortwave signals and weather and emergency alerts out of the air, as well as leading-edge audio devices that'll connect you to the Internet. C-Crane is the place to go to find a perfect radio for yourself or a cool gift for that radio lover in your life. Call 800-522-8863. That's 800-522-8863. Or visit them online at ccrane.com. ccrane.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison rap. Crime and violence were big topics this past week in the national talk media conversation, as was immigration reform. Americans were reminded of a hideously violent event that took place in 2018 and will long be etched into our collective memory. Nicholas Cruz pleaded guilty Wednesday to killing 17 people, 14 students and three staff members at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, avoiding a trial but setting up a fight over his punishment for the 2018 attack. Life in prison with no parole or the death penalty, one or the other. We're joined now by Joyce Kaufman, a popular talk show host on WFTL that covers Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and the Palm Beaches. Now, uh, Nicholas Cruz uh, pleads guilty. Um, And I understand that you somehow crossed paths with him in a court situation. So fill us in on that and fill us in on your take on the present state of this terrible story. Well, I will. You know, it's interesting. I got called for jury duty a couple of weeks ago, and I always get frustrated because you know they're not going to see the talk host on the jury. So it's always kind of a complete waste of my time. And on Monday of that week, I saw that Elizabeth Shera, the judge in the Nicholas Cruz case, was going to see the jury, no matter what, by Friday on the case of Nicholas assaulting the prison guard, which was on videotape. So I said, you know, I'm going to go down, and if I get called, I'll bet you I get called for that case. And sure enough, I was called in the second group and got to go into the courtroom. I didn't expect Nicholas Cruz to be sitting there, however, and I ended up directly opposite him so that I had to look at him the entire time. And I can tell you, it was torture for me, and I was really surprised at how much anger I felt just being in his presence. 
If you didn't know that he was involved in that type of a crime and, uh, you know, such an unthinkable act, would you have gotten a bad vibe from him if he was just a guy sitting there that you did not know? Well, it's interesting that you asked that, Michael. Only you would ask that question. But I spent the entire 30 or 40 minutes in the courtroom praying that I would, you know, that this anger would be lifted from me and that I could see him as the young man he was and as the boy he had been. And I was able to see him that way in the final analysis. It had to be something demonic that possessed this person to do what he did, because all I saw was a crumpled, broken guy with a mask on and tears in his eyes. He couldn't really maintain any eye contact with anybody, and he looked—he just looked pathetic. That's mm. all I can say. I often wonder about the psychology of people that are able to do these type of crimes. You know, you mentioned demonic. Are they possessed by some evil spirit, either metaphysically or something that is more scientifically, you know, measurable? Um, can people change? Is it mental illness? You know, is there truly evil and good in the world? You know, um, what are some of the things? that rolled through your brain as you were in that situation? Well, I thought about evil and good, and I thought about my friend Andy Pollock, whose daughter Meadow was killed that day, and I thought about some of the other families, because these are my neighbors. I live just, uh, you know, six miles away from uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and I knew Andy quite well. And so the pain, being present with someone who killed all those innocent teenagers as they were just going about their day and killed teachers and, and all the rest of it, all the memories came flooding back. And, and you know, it's, it's a very difficult case. I'm, I'm pleased that he pleaded guilty because I don't think they could sit a jury in this state that wouldn't find him guilty. I mean, we've seen the videotapes. We know what happened. And, and the same for this assault against the prison guard. We've all seen that videotape. So, you know, the modern world makes it really much easier to get a conviction in a case like this. What do you think the impact of this case has been in terms of um, our dealing with so many of these mass murders? This one seemed to stand out. It seemed to be pivotal, um, maybe the timing or maybe the nature of it. But uh, three and a half years later, it does still stand out, whereas... I hate to say this, many of the other mass murders have all blurred into each other, which is just a tragic commentary on these times. But what are your thoughts about this case and, you know, the the longer arc of history? Well, I think that this case became very political, and I think that's what changed the dynamic. All of them bring up the issue of gun control, and you have people who have their their perspective on that issue. Um, but this case got entangled with presidential politics, and it was the first one to do that. You had President Donald Trump taking a very active role in pursuing justice, but you also had a pro-Second Amendment president in Donald Trump. So there was, uh, there was a lot of attention being paid by all the major media and certainly by talk radio. So I think it had a, a substantial societal effect that some of the others hadn't had. Now, I want to switch gears real quickly because uh, you uh, recently attended the uh, fair Hold Their Feet to the Fire um, radio row that I've been to for something like 13 years in a row, and I wasn't able to be there, and thus I didn't get to see you and so many of my colleagues. Um, I hear the event was very successful. Um, um, what was the what was the, the vibe, so to speak, there this year in this pandemic year? But um, more to the point... 
what do you think is going to happen in terms of the crisis at the southern border where the only place it's being talked about in the media is news talk radio? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, there was a lot of frustration. A lot of us who have been going, I was there at the very first one, Roger Hedgecock and I had really come up with the idea. And I I don't remember ever seeing so many sheriffs and so many Border Patrol agents and so many law enforcement people at these rallies, but they are so overwhelmed and so uh, disturbed by what's going on at the border. And knowing that we're the only place they can come and talk, it was a very frustrated event. It was lovely, but, um, you know, you're sitting in Washington, D.C., and there's the Capitol building is, again, surrounded by barbed wire fencing. And, you know, the people's house doesn't belong to the people anymore. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of emotion, more emotion than usual. That's Joyce Kaufman of WFTL Fort Lauderdale, a big news talk station with a huge signal heard all across South Florida. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Social media, the Internet and cybersecurity are always in the news and a major topic of conversation in the talk media. This week was no exception, as even more major companies were victimized by ransomware, a process by which hackers break down their ability to function and demand a heavy payment to restore their digital and Internet operations. Joining us from Boston is Bentley University law professor Steve Weissman, founder of the cybercrime-fighting website Scamicide.com and one of the nation's leading experts on modern-day scams. The macro and the micro. Uh, the macro, the federal government recently just issued some new warnings about uh, tremendous threats of uh, ransomware to corporations. Last year was the worst year on record, and we beat that within four months of 2021, uh, and it's getting worse. Uh, you also look at the uh, the threats to our essential infrastructure, the electrical grid, water. Uh, these are things that we need to be dealing with immediately. And uh, on the good side, uh, the government seems to be recognizing uh, these issues. Uh, on the bad side, you have people like the uh, head of security for the Pentagon resigning, saying that the reason he's resigning is because the government is not uh, focusing enough on this. But it is isn't just the macro, it's the micro. All of us as individuals are very vulnerable, and that's something we can do. And while while it may appear to be overwhelming as far as how you deal with it, I think, and I invented this word, we can make it whelming. It's big, but it's something that we can take steps to protect ourselves. Well, one of the things I want to avoid in this conversation, because I like to talk theory and broad strokes more than get into um, recipes and uh, laundry lists, is um, uh, the fact that uh, you have this amazing website. And um, it's called scamicide.com. And uh, you're, you're celebrating the 10th anniversary of this website. I, I'm not sure the exact date, but does it fall out this month or is it just this year? Um, it, it actually, uh, we had our 10th anniversary about two weeks ago. And so it was kind of apt to have it uh, in October. And scamicide.com uh, is a website that provides daily new updated information about the latest scams, the latest identity theft threats, and cybersecurity and what you can do about them. How do these major companies still fall victim to ransomware when they have the resources to protect themselves? Um, and um, a second question is 
uh, is the major threat coming from domestic criminals or from international uh, and foreign organizations? Let's start with the uh, the first question. Um, you know about uh, these big companies falling victim you know, to, to this ransomware. Is something, and I'll give you a prediction right now. What is going to happen now? Uh, the the federal government has tried to uh, encourage companies to take the necessary steps to uh, protect themselves, and many companies have taken steps, but probably more have not, and it absolutely baffles me. And so what we're now starting to see, we're starting to see the federal government actually take legal action, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the FTC, against companies that do not protect their data and their security better. And this is, a, uh, this is something uh, that they have an obligation to do carry that to what you haven't seen yet, but what you are going to see in the future is you're going to see stockholder lawsuits. Stockholder lawsuits against their, uh, their boards of directors for failing to take proper action. And there is, there's a real good theory of legal liability that uh, these boards of directors do uh, owe to their stockholders to do this. So uh, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked and dismayed at how many companies do not do a, uh, a good job. Big companies that have the money and little companies that can make the effort uh, to protect themselves from these scams and uh, these data breaches. But I think we're, we're getting at a point where if these companies don't shape up, you're going to see federal legal action taken against them and stockholder suits. What about um, the danger? Uh, are we more in danger, or is it all of the above, which it probably is? I'm answering it before I'm asking. Are we more in danger of domestic enemies, or are we more in danger of foreign governments and or foreign organizations slash individuals? You know, it is everyone to a great extent, and it's a fascinating business model that uh, so many of the uh, cyber attacks uh, come come from. And then that business model is there are a limited number of these cyber criminal geniuses, the Lex Luthers of the world, uh, and what they do is they create the software and the delivery systems, but they go on a part of the Internet called the dark web where bad guys buy and sell goods and services, and they lease out their technology and delivery systems to lesser sophisticated criminals. So you will get foreign and domestic. But that being said, uh, I do think the threat, and I think you were kind of implying it as well, is largely from overseas and largely from Eastern Europe and largely from North Korea. And those and also China. Those are places that are not only hotbeds of uh, cyber crime, but they are uh, they're cyber criminals who are tolerated by the governments, particularly in, in Russia and Eastern Europe, and certainly uh, in China to a lesser degree, but definitely so. And particularly these uh, Russian cyber crime uh, groups. Uh, they pose a tremendous, a tremendous threat, and unless we get greater international cooperation, and it's difficult getting it from Russia, um, this is going to continue to be a problem. I guess um, uh, 
it must be difficult there for them to attack their own people because of the extra scrutiny and lack of First Amendment rights that exist um, in these countries. For example, if somebody were to be in China and try to steal Chinese identities and things of that <laughs> nature, that's, that would probably be tougher to do there than it is for people to do it here. Am I correct? Yes. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because the two very interesting models that most people are not aware of. In China, most of the cyber crime is done by cyber criminals who are part of the Chinese army. And uh, the Chinese military will actually be hacking and has hacked American corporations for many years, stolen intellectual property, stolen data, and this is done as part of the government. Interestingly enough, James Comey, when he was the FBI director, said there are two kinds of companies in this uh, two kinds of companies in this country there are those that have been hacked by the Chinese and there are those that don't know they've been hacked by the Chinese but in Russia Russia actually kind of farms out the work the cyber criminals acting on behalf of Russia and that's including those who were attacking not only our infrastructure but the uh, the past uh, elections they are sort of like independent contractors. And the, what happens is the Russian government uh, use the carrot and the stick. They say, look, you will do our bidding when we ask you, and then you are free to attack whomever, wherever, so long as you do not attack Russian uh, institutions. Uh, you also have the option, if you don't work for us, for to go into prison. That's Bentley University in Boston law professor and the founder of Scamicide.com, Steve Wiseman. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. President Biden's struggle to get his comprehensive multi-trillion dollar budget approved through an evenly split, heavily hyper-partisan Senate has faced two flies in its ointment, both from the Democratic Party, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Let's pay a visit to one of Talk Radio's most interesting on-air individuals, morning host and owner of our affiliate in West Virginia, News Talk Radio station WVLY Wheeling. He has a bird's-eye view of Senator Manchin, and he's liberal. 
So, Howard, you're one of those rare on-the-air liberals uh, in an industry, at least commercial news talk radio, basically dominated um, by conservatives. And uh, you um, are on a radio station in, in a pretty conservative area. You and I have touched base before on uh, the interesting presence of uh, U.S. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia in the national discussion. And since we talked, his role has become even more pivotal and consequential and certainly controversial. So what are your thoughts about him? And um, what are the people in, in West Virginia on each side of the aisle thinking about Mr. Manchin? You know, Manchin has a... He's hard to pin here in West Virginia... Republicans always run someone against him, and during a campaign, they they say how terrible he is. Uh, but after the campaign is over, a lot of Republicans are going, you know, he's not that bad a guy in terms of the way he votes. Same thing in reverse with Democrats. Uh, there there are at least some progressive Democrats left in our state, and they rail and rant against Manchin. But come election time, they go for the D the D after his name. He's a uh, has always been an interesting figure, but he, uh, maybe polarizes isn't the right word, but he certainly is a um, uh, he's a figure that creates a lot of conflict, I think, in people on, on both sides of the aisle. And, and it's become a guessing game in this state. What is he really up to? You know, what what is the game plan he's playing right now? What are your thoughts? Is he a clever politician out for personal gain and working, working the uh, the, the room, as you say, or is he um, uh, operating on principle? Well, let me begin by saying I think he's a very clever politician. In fact, he is one of the single best retail politicians I've ever known. I mean, he's a tremendously good politician. I also think he operates very much from from principle, um, the principles that he himself uh, defines. He has, he is, and always has been, what we used to call West Virginia Democrat. Uh, very, you know, farther to the right than most Democrats are across the country, um, and he's always been in that in, in that mold. And I think he is still there. You know, there was an article yesterday. Uh, Mother Jones magazine published an article saying that they had sources who said that Manchin was going to um, threaten to leave the Democratic Party to become an independent if he didn't get his way inside the party. Um, and every couple of years this comes up, Manchin's going to change. He's going to become a Republican. I don't think you'll ever see that. Joe Manchin is, at heart, an old-line Democrat, and he operates on the principles of that. But he also operates on the principles, Michael. When, when, when Joe Manchin was governor of the state, and he was a very successful governor, his, his technique was, and I think you and I may have talked about this before, it sort of became almost a joke. Joe Manchin would call people together into his room in the governor's office, and lock the doors and say, look, we're not, guys, we're not leaving until we have an agreement. That was what he did. He worked out deals. I'm not sure he understands that the world has completely changed in terms of political divide anymore. I think he still thinks he can do that. So far, he hasn't been very successful in, on Capitol Hill. Where do you see yourself in terms of the spectrum of political ideology on the left? Are you are you an AOC person? Are you a Biden person? Are you somewhere in the middle? Uh, what is your perspective? Well, I'm further to the left than left of center, but I'm not I, I, I'm not a, 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 a radical left wing liberal either. I I suppose somewhere between Biden and AOC, I guess if you want to put it there. I. Uh, you know, honestly, and people always say this is true, I think, A, the older you get, and B, once you've been a business owner, it does put a little different perspective on certain things. Um, 
you know, than my wild-eyed radical Vietnam-era protest. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> it does. Absolutely, it does. And, uh, and 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 as I mentioned going into this, you're not only um, a top personality on your station, your stations, but you are the owner, and uh, that that gives you a whole different angle on on the business community and the uh, the way the world runs. Um, I um, I came up with this wild idea, and um, I, I I asked another guest on this program um, a question. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts are. What do you what do, what do you think about the the far out possibility of Joe Manchin replacing Joe Biden in 2024 as a more viable candidate for the Democrats? If in fact um, his polls are as bad as uh, some people claim at this point and get worse, uh, or is that just a silly thought? No. Oh. I, I don't think it's a totally outrageous thought. I don't think it's necessarily. In fact, I would bet it's not in Joe Manchin's mind. Uh, but I don't think if he were asked the question, he would say never, ever, ever either. Um, I, it, it's a possibility. He certainly, I mean, Michael, you see this from outside our state. There is not a day that goes by now that there's not a Joe Manchin story or two or three or four in all the major media. So he's certainly becoming a very well-known national figure, and he's the, the position he's trying to play is a very far right-wing moderate, if you will. Um, I, I don't think it's something Joe Manchin is interested in, but I, do I think it's outlandish? Not totally. No, I don't. That's morning host and station manager of our Wheeling, West Virginia affiliate, Howard Monroe of WVLY Wheeling. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Okay, we have time for one more. Former Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, died this week of COVID-19, brought on by his immunodeficiency due to blood cancer. We're joined now by longtime White House correspondent and now Executive Director of the D.C. Radio Company, Victoria Jones. I think uh, I think his death took everybody by surprise. What was your reaction? I was very shocked because, I, first of all, I always thought of him as very young, uh, which in some ways he was. He was in his early 80s. And second of all, I was shocked that he had breakthrough COVID. I had not realized that he had blood cancer and early stage Parkinson's. But I was I was as shocked, I think, as everybody else. And then, of course, you know, you wait for not just the the tributes to come in, but you also wait for the division these days in this country. Well, he was divided on a couple of levels. Uh, certainly uh, his um, departure from the Republican Party and uh, turning his back on Donald Trump. And then, of course, there was the whole weapons of mass destruction situation that um, even he said was a blot on his career. Um, I always, throughout the entire time that we um, had the post 9-11 and then the build up to um, Gulf War Part Two, the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, Afghanistan I could understand. I never bought into the notion that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And I remember my, my frustration watching Colin Powell making that famous speech that, of course, is, as he said, a blot on his otherwise stellar career and his memory, uh, making the speech showing maps and 
you know, he was the pointer and circles and all of this um, intelligence that was gathered. And I, I just, you know, I'm on record. I, I, I talked about it on the air. I didn't buy it. And I couldn't understand how this was happening. Uh, do you recall those days? I recall them very well, very clearly. And it, it, it was really quite extraordinary. And before the speech, Powell spent several days at the CIA. He was grilling analysts on the intelligence. Th there were a lot of claims in an early White House draft of the speech he felt were unsupported. So goodness knows what, what they were saying before he, he left them out. But even so, uh, he, you know, we know now that there, were, you know, it wasn't, there was no there there or a lot of not there there. A lot of skeptics in the, in the international community community who were not persuaded. A lot of people in, in the US, most people really supported the war. Um, and remember, there was some an interesting dynamic across the pond going on, which was that Tony Blair was doing the same thing. And there was an investigation just in the last few years into Tony Blair and whether the intelligence was what they've called sexed up which they've concluded, yeah, it was. Well, to this day, the conventional narrative, conventional wisdom, is that uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were the victims of faulty intelligence by the uh, U.S. intelligence community, which I find it difficult to buy, quite frankly. I find it difficult to, to accept that. Uh, I, I think that Dick Cheney was the mastermind of that, and uh, I think that George W. Bush um, either was very naive, not as uh, intelligent uh, in terms of intelligence, or maybe he just was part of that plot to invade Iraq when the perpetrators of 9-11 were not from Iraq and George W. Bush's father, George H.W. Bush, knew, as well as almost everybody knew, that Saddam Hussein was huffing and puffing about having weapons of mass destruction to protect himself from Iran. That, 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 that this, was, this was his way of creating, uh, you know, a mystery, his own mutually assured destruction uh, situation that uh, you better not mess with me. I've got weapons of mass destruction. I don't believe they ever thought he really did. Uh, that's a whole angle on it that uh, you just don't hear about in terms of uh, history. And nowadays, with people cherry-picking whatever they want from history to make their own political narrative uh, uh, affirm <laughs> their own notions or, or what they're selling to their, to their readers or uh, uh, listeners or viewers or constituents, I mean, you don't know what's real anymore. What do you think? I was a White House correspondent during both of George, during George W. Bush's time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I remember that time quite clearly. George W. Bush was a straightforward, straight shooter. And he was not an ambitious man in the sense of, yeah, I want to go to war. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do these other things. He surrounded himself with men who had very clear objectives of what they wanted to do. And because he was not ambitious, um, because he he came to work each day and he went home and then he went to bed at 830, things happened around him. And he went along. 
So, so he's maybe guilty of neglect. I don't know that he. I don't know that I'd go to say that he's guilty of neglect, but I will say that he was not a curious person. Going back um, to Colin Powell. Aside from all of that, and I knew when we talked about this today, it was going to stir up the weapons of mass destruction and the George W. Bush history and, and Iraq and uh, Persian Gulf War II, et cetera, Saddam Hussein, which um, in some ways is very recent. In other ways, feels like it was forever ago. Um, but Colin Powell, aside from, aside from that controversy and the fact that Trump has been criticized for being critical of him as opposed to, you know, falling in line with everybody and saying, you know, he was a great man, a great American. Um, he was quite an extraordinary individual and his accomplishments for a, for a kid who grew up without, you know, with, without, he wasn't part of a, a big wealthy political family. He's a self-made man. Um, first uh, African-American secretary of state, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I think about his, he could have been president had he wanted to, or he certainly could have been a contender. I think that um, in the end, he will have a very positive and a very, very glowing legacy. Would you agree? I would agree. I think he will have a glowing legacy. I agree with you. He could not only have run for president, which, and he had two speeches. He had both speeches written about running and not running. I think he could have taken it. I think he, I think he could have won. That's Victoria Jones, executive director of the DC Radio Company, and that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation. Looking back at this past week of Monday, October 18th through Friday, October 22nd, 2021. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Rap is a production of Good Phone Communications in conjunction with Talkers Magazine and Talk Media Network. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.